Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy Church. Good morning. Happy New Year. Uh, Man, so good to be with you guys this morning. Saw you walking in in your brand new Christmas galoshes because it is raining like crazy in Charlotte. Um, But hey, Happy New Year, Mercy Northeast. And if you're online with us as well, man, we're glad that we can do this for you. But like I've been saying, we hope you will come and join us in worship soon, soon. Hey, uh, speaking of, uh, as we kick off the new year, and I recognize a lot of folks are new with us Uh, What we're going to do today after every service, both at Northeast and here at Providence Road, is we're going to take some time right after the service for something we call starting point. It's about a 15-minute kind of reception that we have that our pastors lead. So Pastor Richard and Joseph up there at Northeast, uh, myself, Pastor Jake here at Providence Road, and we're just going to introduce our church to you, who we are, what we are about. So I think it's a big deal to belong to a local body of believers. So if you want to stick around, again, right after the service, Providence Road, it's going to be right in here, right down front after the service, and we'd love to meet you and get to help, help you kind of figure out what your next steps might be, all right? With that said, we got some work to do. Psalm 46 is where we are going to be this morning. This chapter of the Bible is brimming with a good word for us today. We are beginning a series, really continuing if you've been around Mercy for a little while. But we're going to take the month of January, and we're going to be in the Psalms, in a series that we call Knowing God. And we call it knowing God because we are meant to know God. Not just know about him, but to know him. He is a person that we are made to know and to walk with. Much as we would a friend, we are made to know God. And I think the reason many of us have unimpactful spiritual lives that feel disconnected, our spirituality, whatever you want to call it, feels disconnected from the rest of what's going on in our lives is because we treat God as a subject matter and his Bible as a textbook. And that's not what he is. He's a person. He's the living God. He's not a moral code to follow. He's not a religious ritual to uphold. He's not a conversation topic to avoid around the holiday dinner table. He isn't a supernatural force. He isn't the divine clockmaker who got things started and then pulled his hands back. He's the living God. He's a person. And he created me and you to have this deep, close, intimate relationship with him. Something so close that even the strongest of relationships here on earth are just weak comparisons to what he has created us to have with him. And in knowing him, that's where life is. In knowing him, that's where power is. So I want us to get to know him better than we would a friend or a spouse. I want us to get to know God. And the Psalms are a great place to start with that because they're like, conversations recorded. It's either God talking to people or people talking to God. They're a great place to start. And so my hope for January as we kick off this year 
is really just to learn how to walk and talk with God. And I believe in that, in that relationship with God, that's where we'll experience power and maybe a renewal of faith for some of you. And so we start in Psalm 46, y'all. This one in particular has just really challenged me. Um, I got to kind of this practice as a part of my own uh, private devotional life that I go through a psalm a week. So I read the same psalm every day for a week and then go to the next one. So about um, towards the end of last year, Psalm 46, I'm in that. And I don't normally like just take what I get in my time in the word in the morning and bring that to preach. Most of that's just between me and the Lord. It's for me to walk with and know God. But Psalm 46 just kind of wrecked me in a really good way that I think would be good for us as a church body to, to go through. It brought me renewed closeness and freedom in my relationship with God. So I'm kind of offering it to you this morning, hoping the same thing happens. My main driving point of the sermon today is a small step that has brought massive impact for me in my walk with God. It's two simple words. Be still. Be still. That's it. And I'm going to call you to be still. In fact, let me go ahead and give you even the application of today, and then we'll, we'll build towards it as the psalm builds towards it. I'm going to tell you to be still before God in what I'm going to call listening prayer for five minutes every day between now and next Sunday when we all get back together. Just to be still before God, and I'll show you why. But let's open it up here in Psalm 46 as we crack open this new year. You guys ready? Let's do it. I'm actually going to start in the header where it says, For the choir director, a song of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth. Normally, I don't spend a lot of time in those little headings if your Bible has it, but this one's pretty significant and kind of cool considering our sermon this past weekend where one of our ministry residents, Trey, preached on Numbers 16 and the story of Korah's rebellion. This guy named Korah rebels against God, and as a result, God opens up the earth, and the earth swallows up Korah and his followers. And what this psalm shows us is that there were a few sons of Korah that God spared by his pure mercy, and as a result, what they did in response to God sparing them is they devoted their lives to bringing glory to that God that spared their lives, to making much of his glory. And that resonates with me because we who have been spared from going into the pit, spared because of the mercy of God who swallowed up Christ into the grave instead of us, we can join in this entire psalm with the sons of Korah. Every word you hear, is a word you can pray back to God today. The structure of the sermon is just the structure of the psalm. There's three sections, that this, three kind of movements this thing goes through. So that's going to be our three sections just going to build. I'm going to try and show you like a, just one of the truths that are embedded into these. There's a ton of them, but I'm going to try to show you just one in each one of these sections and the re response of the heart in light of it, and then we'll keep going along. So we'll start in verse 1 where he says, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil, there's a little word, selah, which is just a pause Built in, if you're new to the Psalms, is what's happening there is that the author, the writer, because they're kind of like songs, it's just a pause to say, take in what you just heard. Before we go on to what's next, just take it in, receive it. 
So let's pause together, consider the truth of verse 1, the response of the heart in verse 2, the universal and all-powerful reality of it in the rest of 2 and 3. Here's the truth, y'all. God is our refuge and strength. That's just right there. If I had one verse for you to memorize coming out of this, it'd be this one. I think you'd be blessed to memorize all of Psalm 46, make it your anthem for 22, but one verse I could pick out, Psalm 46, verse 1. God is your refuge and strength, a helper who is always there in times of trouble. He's the refuge. That's the, that refuge where that's a place of retreat. That's where we run to when we're out of energy. It's where we run to when there's nothing left in the tank. It's where we go when we're stressed with all the things that are being thrown at us. It's where we go when we feel under attack, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel scared, when we're hurting. He, he is where we go. He is where we run to because he's always found, ever present. He's always going to be there. He's always going to keep us. The best sort of uh, illustration example of this, and in fact, one that's embedded in how God relates to us, he calls us, or he says he is our father. And I just think about like how a kid will always, a child will always run to mom and dad for whatever problem, however big or however small and annoying the little problem is, right? Whether it's the middle of the night, middle of the day, doesn't matter, right? The little one will run into parents' bedroom, mom, 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 dad, 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 whatever, right? Because they will always be there to help. That's the way they think about mom and dad, and that's the way we're called to think about God. Psalm 91 says we take Refuge in the shadow of his wings. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, a mighty fortress. In fact, there's this old, um, you might know this old German monk, Martin Luther, all right? Familiar with church history. He was a big deal in church history, all right? His favorite psalm was Psalm 46. He sang it on the way to be put on trial for preaching the gospel and standing up against the corruption of the Catholic church at the time. Here's what he said. He said, we sing, he's traveling with his... Traveling companions, they're going to be put on trial. We sing this psalm to the praise of God. Because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. So come, let us sing the 46th psalm and let them do their worst. Let COVID do its worst. Let governments do, this, do their worst. Let the devil himself do his worst. Because even if they do, God is our refuge and strength. The Alpha and the Omega is my refuge. There's this wonderful understanding in Scripture, the more you read it, where you start to recognize that the way forward with God will often feel like the way backward. Psalm 34 says those who feel like their hearts are breaking and they're being crushed by life, that's who God's closest to. What's that about? It's not that God is out to make you suffer or anything. It's that as you are emptied of the things of this world, you are ready to be filled with the fullness of God. God's grace is not just that he will be enough as your refuge. It's that he will fill you in a way that nothing in this world ever has or will. That's how he give, gives grace to the humble. He fills them because they have an empty tank and are ready to be filled and just like he is our refuge, God is our refuge and strength. He puts them right there together. We can't really separate them because they're both products of this helper always found in times of trouble. He secures us and comforts us and simultaneously in that work strengthens us. 
He doesn't do just one. Both happen in the presence of God, security from the attacks of the world, security from the attacks of our mind, and strength, endurance for the day that is supernatural. That's why Hebrews 12, 12, 12, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. It's because in the presence and refuge of God, you'll not just find comfort, you'll find strength. You will. You'll find it. He doesn't just supply the strength, by the way. He's not just the gas station you pull up to and he fills you up. He is the strength. It's him. You don't just come to him to get it. You let him be your strength. So let me ask you a hard question. I had to ask myself. It's a simple one. But I think revealing, when you really ask it of yourself, what's your refuge and strength? Like, really? Let's get past all the... You know, I agree with this verse and nod because I'm in church. What is it really? In times of trouble, what are you saying? In times of stress and doubt and fear, nothing other than turning to the Lord is going to provide you refuge and strength. If you think of some big ones, there are plenty. I think of food. Food will not hold up as your refuge and strength. All right, you know, we go to comfort food. What kind of food do we go to? What is comfort food? Comfort food is not like a heart-healthy omelet, okay? That's not what we call, no. We call mac and cheese and cornbread and all the stuff that we ate Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's comfort food. What does that give you the more that you eat it? Does it give you heart strength? No, they have a name for it. It's heart disease that it gives you. It actually weakens you physically. Food cannot be your savior, Right? The same thing, y'all, same thing's true for alcohol as well. It will give you temporary pleasure, and the more you go to it, the more it will ask of you, and the more empty it will leave you. Take porn. It will not give you refuge and strength. It will not make you glad. It will make you numb. And when the mountains of your life tumble into the depths of the sea, is porn going to be there to strengthen you? No. Of course not. It doesn't strengthen. It weakens it weakens your senses. It numbs your heart. It numbs your ability to, be, to build any kind of close relationships with anyone, including God. What about work? Work, it's not a refuge and it's not strength. It takes, it takes, it doesn't give you strength. What it does, it gives you adrenaline followed by more stress, which needs more adrenaline followed by more stress. And when the mountains of your life tumble in the depths of the seas, it's not going to strengthen you. It's not going to be your refuge. It might give you a severance package. And then it's gone. And we go to all these things and many more out of fear. That's why it says, therefore, I'll not be afraid. We go to these things out of fear. We fear the future that we can't control. And so we go to false spaces of refuge and we turn there, false sources of strength. And some of y'all have been around long enough to experience they leave you empty. But when God is your refuge and strength, then this amazing thing happens. You don't have to fear anything. So here's the first point in our message today. It's the truth and response of these first three verses. God is our refuge and strength, therefore we will not be afraid. And I'm writing this in a way that you can pray it back to God tonight, tomorrow, the rest of this week. Because if he is my refuge and your refuge, it means he's our refuge. And I can't stress how powerful, how powerful the words of a brother and sister in Christ are in moments of fear. I got an older mentor in my life who really brought this psalm out for me this past uh, fall, challenged me about how I respond to fear, looked at my life, showed me where I was living in fear, fear of failure. That's me, always fearing 
failure. I want to succeed and be the best at everything that I do. And there's a fear built in there operating out of that. He showed me how it was happening at work and at home. And what came out was just this simple question, is God really my refuge and strength? Because if he is, I won't make decisions based out of fear of failure. But standing in the refuge and strength of God, I'll do what brings honor and glory to him. Come what may. If the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, I'm good. I'm better than good. I'm secure and strong because God, the eternal king of kings, is my refuge and strength. In fact, what these next few verses are going to do is what I love about this. It's going to now draw our eyes up to that king and up to that kingdom where we find that refuge and strength. Let's look at it. This is more the nature of this refuge and strength, our place in it. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. (laughs) She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage. Kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Look at the contrast between verse 3, if you still got that, with the waters foaming and roaring and raging, and verse 4, with this steady streams of the river that flows in and out of the city of God. See, the great fear in ancient warfare of any city was that its water supply would get cut off. But as long as your water supply is secured, the city can hold out against any attack for an indefinite period of time. And that's what you have here, this river whose streams make glad the mighty city of God. This is the river of Revelation 22, where where, uh, John says, he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. It flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's Jesus. And it's Jesus who says over in John 7, 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow deep from within him. I want us to, today for a minute, be still long enough to embrace and rest in the promise of heaven. In the promise of eternal citizenship in Christ's kingdom, in that city, and the present gladness that we can have in the presence of Christ here and in the promise of hope eternal. Regardless what happens, right? Whatever happens with the mountains tumbling into the depths of the sea. And I know that that's a metaphor and that's on purpose in the Psalms. And some of you all got real mountains very presently tumbling right now. And if you don't, you will. It's the reality of living in a sin-laden world, but we can rest and be glad because our hearts are resting in the hope of the city of the most high God. Here's a second truth. Now, I'm just going to make it really simple for you. Heaven, not earth, can determine my joy. Because I belong to the city of God, this is true, by the way, if you are in Christ, man, heaven, eternity can determine my joy, not present circumstances. And I say this because I've just seen over the past couple of years, you felt it, seen a lot of Christians stressed out and angry over things of this world, over earth stuff, 
whether it's COVID, racial strife, or politics. Those have been the big three the past couple of years. And those, by the way, are just our shared experiences. In addition, all the individual circumstances we face. And I look at Psalm 46 and it tells me, kingdoms will rage. I feel that a little bit. It tells me nations will topple. But then the whole earth melts when God lifts his voice. What a picture. And my soul is reminded, and presently I'm thankful, that my first and primary allegiance is to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that brings peace, joy to this present moment, whatever the moment is. And that imagery, um, when the morning dawns, oh, y'all, I'm telling you, this whole thing is so rich. It's a hard thing about like studying something for a long time and then figuring out how I'm going to give it to you in 30 minutes. This is one of those where I'm like, we'll just see how this goes. Might do it just a whole second sermon, second service. I don't know. But this one right here, the, the morning dawns. In ancient warfare, that's when the enemy attacks. You think of Exodus 14. It's at the morning watch at daybreak when the Egyptians attack Moses. Israel's on the run, and then God swoops in and conquers them. Think of 2 Chronicles 20. In the morning, Jehoshaphat led Judah out to battle. They're outnumbered, and God says, just go out there and sing and watch what I do. That's a strange warfare tactic. And they go out and they start singing and God ambushes the enemy and then turns the enemy against each other and defeats them all while his people are singing. When the morning dawns, God will help her. God will help us. I love this. He is our refuge after the battles of this day and our strength for the battles that come the minute we open our eyes the next day. Because we're always in him. And therefore, anything that comes at us comes at God. You thought about that? Anything that's coming at you, God is with you, it's coming to God. Verse 7 says, the Lord of armies is with us. Morning, <laughs> on the third day, the break of dawn, he rose. Jesus rose, defeated the enemy, gives us victory. Y'all, the gospel announces the dawning of victory over sin and death for us. Victory of God over Satan, the victory of the church over the powers of this world. God himself, who rose at dawn to give you victory, will forever help you when the morning dawns on your day. It's his commitment to you. And then I think about this eternal city. I think about the description in Revelation, where Jesus is the light that illuminates the city always, so there's no more need for the sun or the moon. And it's an eternal dawn where he will always be there, always, and will never have any need because of it. And so then it goes into verse 8. In light of all that, come, see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shadows Excuse me, he shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. The psalmist turns to the matchless power of the Lord. He invites us in to see it, bringing devastation on the earth. This is the imagery of a conquering king after a major battle where they would bring. I told you, so much. This is a warfare psalm, right? What's happening is common as a show of strength that the victorious general or king's going to gather up all the weapons of the opposing force, put them in a heap, and burn them. And the psalmist is saying, people of God, remember. Remember, come and see again. 
Remember what he's done. Remember the works of the Lord. Think of how he defeated King Sennacherib, how he defeated the Midianites without using a single man from Gideon's army, how he surrounded the hilltops with his army when Elijah appeared surrounded. And this song gives even greater meaning to us, church. Remember how he got out of the grave. Remember how he defeated sin and death. Remember how he set you free from bondage to sin. Remember, remember how he saved you. Our memories are so short. And the enemy would love to keep it that way. We think faith often is only future-oriented, but y'all, it's not. Faith is also grounded in the past. That's why we gather for worship, why we need each other so badly. Because every Christian that's gathered for worship this morning here in Providence Road Road in the Northeast, you know what we are? We are the works of the Lord. We're the testimony of the Lord. Come, see the works of the Lord. See these sinners that God saw fit to save. See these adulterers, these addicts, these liars, these pretenders, these misfits, these rebels. Look at what he's done, even to us. And look at how he's working now. And with this fresh awareness of his power in our minds, finally in verse 10, God speaks. All of this, the psalmist has been talking, and now God comes in, and he speaks, and he's got one verse, stop fighting, and know I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. So then the psalmist concludes with verse 8 again, says it again now in verse 11, or verse 7 again in verse 11, the Lord of armies is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Consider it. Don't just leave it because the psalm is over. Consider it. That phrase right there, stop fighting. Most translations, maybe yours, says be still. And I actually like that better, but I appreciate the CSB, which is the translation we preach out of around here. I like the heart because like I told you, this is a battle psalm and the Lord is calling us in light of his power to stop our own fighting and to rest in him. But still, I think the better translation of the Hebrew word rafa there is be still. And uh, I will say that stop fighting or be still is a plural command. In southern Hebrew, it's y'all be still. All right? And that's what you need to catch as you see that right there. Be still and know that I am God. There's a command from God. Stop everything. What a challenge to us. That's why it's the main point. I think it's the biggest challenge, actually, for our generation. Be still. Because I know God is God. I can be still. That's your third point today. Because I know God is God. Be still and know there's something actively that's happening. You're knowing that he's God. Be still. Because I know God is God. I can be still, and y'all, stillness must go beyond mere stillness of activity. It's got to go to stillness of the mind and heart. What a confrontation this is to the world's culture of busyness and distraction that we have allowed to creep into our lives. There's this um, professor at Charleston Southern University, Michael Zigarelli, surveyed 20,000 Christians across the globe and identifies as the major distraction from spiritual life, 
busyness. And looks at it and compares it to the world. You know, the world finds its identity and meaning and activity. Has to. It's got to have something. And Christians, we, without recognizing it, will assimilate into the world's culture of busyness and therefore become too distracted for God. And in that kind of, just like the culture, what we'll do is we will marginalize God because we're busy with our busyness and distractions. That makes us all the more too busy, makes us marginalize him all the more. Well, John Ortberg put this really well. He said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we'll renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. You notice by now the psalm is referencing war. Israel is regularly in battle. Their familiarity with war makes it easy to understand that just as there's a war out there, there's a war in here. Emotions rage. We don't still them before God and take them to him and let him speak to us, though. What do we do instead with our thoughts and everything else? We just push them aside and go on to the next thing. We get distracted. We live by distraction. We do. Just check, and I did it, guilty, first and foremost, chief of sinners, checked my screen time against my prayer time over the last week. We live in distraction. That's why I can't have my phone or any device near me when I'm in the Word each day, because my phone wants to push notification me right out of the presence of God. And you might be the same way. Y'all, we could even collectively be distracted as a church. We could fill up with programs that keep us busy, that meet our felt needs, and all the while miss God. We could have a busy, dead church. And I just refuse. An older pastor told me, he said, man, the deader your gospel is, the flashier your church is going to have to be to keep up. And that spoke to me. He's right. Because nothing, nothing, nothing compares to the power of the presence of God. Nothing compares to knowing him. And we've got to be careful never to substitute the power of the presence of God for anything else. And it starts with us each day alone with God. The devil would love nothing more than to distract us right away from God. Uh, there's a great, I've referenced this book before to you guys. I would encourage you to read it. C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, really digs into this. It's fascinating. It's worth your time. But the short summary of the point he makes is that the devil is actively working against you knowing God. You are in a war. And I don't know if that messes you up, if it messes with you a little bit. If you're like brand new to church and you've just been told you're in a war, well, know the truth. It will set you free. You are in a war. Eternity is at stake. And the devil's main tactic is not to jump out from behind the bush burning with a pitchfork. It's to distract you to death. Distraction is such a great weapon. And I'm telling you, I, I even see this in... My own, like I said, chief of sinners in this, I try to get away for uh, a couple of days each year on like a personal retreat, pastoral personal retreat, just to be alone with God. And every single year, the first day is absolute agony for me because I'm like, all right, I'm alone with God now. And about 10 minutes in, I'm like, I need something to do. What movies are on? I don't have a TV, right? I don't have any device or anything like that. I need something. I need because I don't want to sit still before God. 
What's going on there? I'm terrified what he might reveal to me. (laughs) I'm so used to being distracted. I'm addicted to distraction. We all are. I think we're missing the fullness of God because we never stop and sit still before him. Stillness. It's a discipline of ages past that we Christians need to grab hold of with two hands and embrace quickly. We need to sit still before God, shut our mouths and our minds for a few moments, and let the knowledge that God is God be enough to strengthen our souls. We need to be still. I mean, think about it this way. Like, you think back in that day, a servant would never speak first in the king's presence. Never. The king always speaks first. We need to come into the presence of the Lord, bow down before him, and be still. And let the presence of God, let that be enough. Let that be your refuge and your strength. Let him bring rest to your soul. Let him strengthen you for the battle of the day. It'll impact everything else. To be still means it's like a contrast to anxiousness or to complaining or boasting or fretting. And he gives us a descriptor in there to help reinforce the difference between um, him and us. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and all the earth. He will. Not you, not me. Him. Even if you reach the pinnacle of fame, it'll only be for a moment. Um, my family and I are a little bit of Harry Potter nerd fans, okay? So we watched this scene, came out last night. It's like the big reunion, 20-year reunion, which just makes me feel old. It's all that that did, okay? But the 20-year reunion, and what I'm thinking is, at, and it looks back and at that time how famous they are. And then today, everybody's like, what, what happened to Ron? You know, that's all. It's just kind of a, a distant thought of days past. Even if you reach the pinnacle of fame, it'll only be for a moment. Only one name will be exalted among the nations, only one. And y'all, there's something about that knowledge that if you were to go to Iran right now and make it into one of the fastest growing church growth movements in the world, one name would be exalted. It wouldn't be yours. Wouldn't be mine. It'd be Jesus. And as those Iranians sit still before God, it would humble you. Wow, God's so much bigger than me. Y'all, I'm not very well traveled, all right? God has given me the opportunity, though, to worship with Christians in Europe, Africa, Asia, Central America, and the Middle East. And what hits me is each time I've sat there, not understanding their language, I'm always humbled because I'm reminded again of how much bigger he is than me. He will be exalted among the nations, not me. He's doing so much in the world for his glory, not mine makes me laugh at how caught up I am in my own stuff. He's so much big. That's why our vision is a church. We want to see a gospel awakening happen in Charlotte, carried to the ends of the earth, because the best thing for us is just to get caught up in that plan. It humbles us appropriately and exalts the right name. Now, listen, I told you this, um, there's an action step coming out of this, and really every sermon I'm going to do my best in this series to give you some handles out of the Psalms so that you can get to work walking with God. And today's action step is listening prayer. Listening prayer for five minutes each day until we get back together next Sunday. Just shut everything off. And this is a challenge. Even if you're not a Christian, I'm going to tell you in a second how you take that step. I would definitely encourage you to listen to the Lord. Have him speak to you. 
But Christians, let's shut everything off, everything. Set a timer if you gotta. I don't mean everything except for the Inya music that's in the background. I mean everything. Read this psalm and then just tell him, because I know that you're God and not me. Speak to me, Lord. Like Samuel to the Lord. Speak to me, Lord. I'm listening. Speak to me, Lord. I'm listening. I'm telling you, it's going to be hard, all right? It's going to be really awkward because thoughts are going to flood your mind. Rando stuff, like your list that you got to knock out today. So you might need pen and paper. Write those down. Now they're there, and you can deal with those later, okay? That's the discipline of it day after day, to sit. Because, y'all, I'm telling you, it's just five minutes, but it might set a new pattern for your soul where I'm still before my king. I'm telling you, if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't have saving faith in Christ, then the scary thing is that this isn't for you first. I want you to pray. I want you to talk to him. Well, you got to understand, as Jesus says, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But amazingly enough, this king that we have rebelled against offers us relationship with him. So I've told you a couple of times already in this message that he took the punishment. He was swallowed up into the grave that you and I deserved. And by believing that he did that for you, man, the payment for your sin is paid. And you can have this relationship with God. You can know God. You can know him and walk with him and be filled and strengthened and at peace through his presence with you. I'm going to close this way. We're going to take communion at both of our campuses. Um, But before we do that, I just want to pause and be still before the Lord. So we're going to get into a posture of prayer. This is a head bowed and eyes closed just to respect your neighbor that's here with you also being still before the Lord. And we're doing it together as a church family together to be still before the Lord. And you just tell them. We're not going to do five minutes of it right here. Just a few moments. Maybe it's a little practice for you for tomorrow morning or tonight. Speak to me, Lord. I'm listening. If you're not a Christian, this is your moment. Respond to the gospel. God, I believe Jesus died for me. I receive this gift of salvation. Thank you, God, for saving me. You pray there before the Lord, stillness before him, and then we'll take communion together.